Welcome to the PWE and Me podcast, a place where we talk about the workplace, how it's changing, and ways that we can create an experience at work that is inspiring, real, and motivates us to bring our best self to work. PWE, what is it? Well, it's an acronym for Purposeful Workplace Experience. I'm on a mission to help our workplaces shift from being transactional to transformational, and PWE is how we will get there. My name is Carolyn Suara, your host and creator of PWE. Welcome to another PWE and Me podcast. Our guest today is Mark C. Crowley, and I am so excited to have him on the show. Mark, a big, big welcome to you. Thank you so very much, Carolyn. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, well, that's great. Now, before we get into this uh, dialogue that I have been uh, thinking so much about, so excited to uh, have the chance to chat with you, let's share uh, a little bit more about you with our listeners. So Mark uh, came from a financial services background. He spent over 20 years in that world. And for those of you who live in that world, I'm sure you know how, um, well, dog eat dog it could be in, in out there. Uh, Mark held some uh, various uh, positions at a national level and at at the America's largest financial institutions, and he was named Leader of the Year. And his experience through that has really helped him connect to some leadership philosophies that we are going to dig in today on our call. Uh, And and Mark wrote a book, uh, Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century, which is a fantastic book. I recommend everybody uh, get a copy. And he also has his own podcast and has had some amazing thought leaders Uh, in culture and leadership on that podcast. He's also a regular contributor to Fast Company and uh, has written articles for USA Today, Reuters, the Huffington Post, and the Seattle Times. So, Mark, just so excited to have you here with us today to talk about your work and your experience. Thank you, Carolyn. This will be fun. Yeah. So, um, I always like to start off the podcast with helping our guests understand the why, why you do what you do, uh, and why it's so important to you. So Mark, what is your why around doing all this work around leading from the heart? Well, it's of course a very big question, but to try to pin it down as efficiently as possible, Carolyn, I, I really truly believe that we are managing people in absolutely the wrong ways. And, uh, all we need to do is look at the metrics, the report card for how our leadership is succeeding to see that, you know, that people are basically miserable. There's statistics, obviously, on the on the engagement side that show that only 30 percent across the world of employees are really fully engaged in their jobs. And that number hasn't gotten any better. Job satisfactions numbers are about in the 50 percent range in the United States. So you've got that metric. And uh, there's another stat that shows 65% of Americans would give up a pay raise in order to get a new boss. So um, you can't really say all the people in management roles are bad. What we're really saying is that their, uh, uh, their beliefs about what drives the greatest performance are bad. And so my why is to say, 
everything that we've always believed was wrong about leadership in terms of how we approach it, everything that we thought was going to be weak, everything we thought was going to upend our success, turns out to be very much the driver of the greatest level of engagement and performance there is. And so at the core of my message is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior. The heart is a feeling sensing organ. And that if we as leaders do things that give people the experience of positive emotions frequently, that is what human beings need in order to thrive. And that is what will turn people on and inspire them in their jobs. So at the end of the day, I feel like I'm the Pied Piper for this idea of literally bringing heart into leadership. It's not a metaphor. Yeah. And, and Mark, you've been at this for a while, uh, too. I know uh, I've been following you on Twitter for years and and seen your work. And it really resonated with me uh, years ago because um, here was an experience I had. I was once told, quote, Carolyn, stop worrying about the people. We need you to drive the business now. And it just blew me away. And I thought, wow, that is the business. So, uh, you know, I, I thank you for all the people out there and myself for helping uh, be that Pied Piper and being an early voice uh, into the management um, sphere and, and starting to talk about this. Uh, it, it's really it's really helped bringing a light. Well, thank you. I, I, I will say that um, I had an experience when the book was coming out where I actually wrote a very big check to a woman who's a strategist for authors. And so she was looking at my book and looking at the articles that I've written and the, the work that I'd done historically. And she came back to me and said, on no uncertain terms that I would fail if I called the book Lead from the Heart. She said, in, in, in no uncertain terms, stop using that expression because uh, it represents you as being soft and weak and somebody who doesn't understand business. And she said, I know that that's not true, but that's how people are going to take it. So I obviously was at a crossroads and had to make the decision. Do I own this and let the world come to me to realize that there's truth in this, that this is truth? Or her recommendation was just say killer engagement. You know, you can talk about the heart later, but that really wasn't my story. Um, I've managed people for, you know, over 20 years this way. I've learned how it works. I know the intimacies of caring about people leads to driving performance. Um, but we hear the word heart and we just think, oh, man, really? You know, we just I, don't yeah. do that. You yeah, know? it's and so I guess did you still did you still cut her the check or did you find someone new? Yeah, she'd already cashed the check. She was very <laughs> clever. She she waited to tell me after she had the money. I remember just thinking, oh man, you know, I paid to hear this. But yeah. you know, she gave me a dose of reality and she wasn't far off. It's taken, you know, it's taken a few years. Suddenly, you know, I'm hearing uh, we're using the word human. We're using the word heart. And, you know, there's a there's there are people now that have the title of heart officer, you know, and it's like, well, that didn't exist even three, four years ago. Yeah. People were really averse to it. So, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to see now that the patience is paying off. 
Well, that's that's I, I agree with you completely. Uh, you know, even just in the last year and a half, I've found there's much more openness to even use the word heart or heaven forbid the L word, love. Um, and and as we do more and more of that, it's helping people to connect to something deeper. And you talk a lot about that in your book. Um, you know, one thing that uh, another thing that resonated in my book, and you just mentioned it there, which was uh, the role that engagement or that our heart plays with engagement. Uh, and that was, um, that was something that really stood out to me in your book. Could you, could you talk a little bit more about how engagement is a decision of the heart? Well, you know, we think we're really rational people, right? We actually pride ourselves for being rational, uh, marginalize emotions, keep emotions out. And, you know, when we hire people for management roles, we want the smartest people possible. Um, the brainiest people get into management roles. And what we're really finding is that, uh, you know, science has proved that the heart and the mind are actually connected and that the heart is a feeling sensing organ that actually is sending signals to the brain. And so when we think we're purely rational, the truth is, is that more often than not, our emotions are influencing the choices that we make, the decisions we make. And this is where, you know, when you work for a manager and if a manager is demonstrating to you that they care about you, they value you, they respect you, they want to see you thrive and do well, this creates this positive emotion um, it's like a drip of positive emotions that is known to create what's called coherence. So when the mind and the heart are operating in perfect synchronicity, it's called coherence. An organization called the Institute of Heart Math has coined this term. And what it means essentially is that by giving people this steady drip of positive emotions, and it creates a sense of well-being in people that puts them into into um, for all intents and purposes, their most ideal ability to the, to perform. And so that's really what we want from people, right? We want people to perform at their best. And yet we approach it from managing saying, if you do well, this is going to affect the shareholders, or if you do well, you know, this could turn into a bonus for you. And what really people need deep down is to feel safe, to be cared for, to be nurtured, to feel that they have a good relationship, somebody who appreciates the work that they're doing, gives them opportunities to grow. That's really what drives engagement. And so at yeah. the end of the day, it's literally and figuratively a decision made by the heart. Love it. And the other, the piece that you said there that really stuck out to me was a, a, a constant drip. So it's not a one time pat somebody on the back and say, great job. It's it's this continual environment or climate that employees are in, correct? Well, we, yes, absolutely. So we know through the work of, of uh, Barbara Fredrickson, particularly in the positive psychology area, she's at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and her work has proved that no emotion is long lived. So if you're having a fight with your husband, for example, and you start throwing plates at one another, you don't go buy a whole new set of plates and start the fight over, you know? It's <laughs> like you take it to the end and then, then it's over. The same thing is true, like, you know, if you think about going to Disneyland and going on a ride and the exhilaration that you feel going through Space Mountain. But, you know, a few minutes later, that exhilaration is gone and you're thinking, hey, we gotta go on the next ride. And that's true for any positive emotion. 
So when you think about it, if any positive emotion or negative emotion doesn't last very long, and if human beings are hardwired to thrive on positive emotions, then they need to have them frequently. So managers go, oh, you know, I thanked them last week. They know that I appreciate them, so I don't need to tell them. And that's just not the way it works. And we think, oh, you know, they're going to get soft around the middle. You know, if I tell them too much how much I appreciate them, they're going to be in my office asking for a raise or, or slacking off. And that just, honestly, that just was never my experience. Yeah. And I agree. I, I, I hear that often from people. I can't keep saying that. They're going to think that I'm too soft. Uh, but, you know, your research and or the research that you're sharing is is proving otherwise. Um, you know, th- there was a, a quote out of your book that really I loved. The brain is always in a hurry seeking advancement, success and self-survival. The heart wants bonds and connections. And the brain just won't slow down to establish those. I, I love that. And it, it really resonated with uh, what the work that I've started to build around the purposeful workplace experience. And that connection is at the core of that. So um, now there's all this science that I can reference to support that. Well, I mean, the truth is we shouldn't need all this science. And, you know, when my book came out and I realized what I was saying was going to offend people and and have them resistant, I had to build the strategy. And my strategy first was to start writing articles that could tap into other people's work, almost as if to say, see, um, I, you know, deep down, I think people realize that they themselves work better when they work for a boss who they know they trust, who they know they can go into their office and say, hey, I'm not feeling good about what we're doing here. Can I talk to you about it and have a reasonable, normal conversation instead of having the manager feel threatened and be defensive, work for somebody that, you know, when they do good work, that they're willing and quick to say, excellent job, proud of you. I wanna help you get where you wanna go to. We know deep down that that's what we all want. And so if that's what we want, it's easy to ascribe it to what everybody wants. But our traditional view of leadership has always been it's it's we need to oppress people and we need to demand people and we need to squeeze from people. And, you know, if we can get away with paying them a little bit less, we've had a victory here. And every one of those things backfires. And that's what we don't realize. And, and in your experience, what pushes people over the edge or to recognize that, hey, it's OK to come from the heart. It's OK to lead from that way. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's part of it is is it, so just to kind of complete the thought, I, I kept writing these articles so that people could ultimately have their brain come to the same conclusion. Right. And I started the podcast so that people could actually hear me have conversations with people whose work in some way, shape or form validate this and give people like, oh, wow, this can really work. Um, But I think what happens is and and why this is taking long to, to actually occur is because managers are waiting for somebody other than them to do it first, i.e. their managers. Right. And so what I found is I was very infrequently managed this way through the course of my career. And the more senior I got, the more, I hate to say it, but the more Machiavellian people were. They were less interested in seeing you succeed. They felt threatened by other people. And so I think you just have to have the courage to do it. And you don't need to make a big deal about it. Just do it. Just get the results. And that, that, that I think, you know what, I'll tell you an interesting story. And I always did, regardless of what teams I managed, 
um, whatever business lines I was managing, I always managed to get incredibly great performance, not like, you know, good performance, but standout performance. And then I left and I went and wrote the book. And when the book came out, there were people that I used to work with were like, you know, mystified, like, what's this hard stuff? Like what happened to Mark in the two years that he's been gone? And they never made the connection that I've been managing this way my entire life. Really? People, they, they didn't make that connection at all? No, they just, all they saw was the results and said, Mark's a great manager. No one ever do- looked under the hood to say, what's he doing differently? You know, they just, it was like, I was, I was like the one to beat, if you were, if you will. You know, it's like people just looked at it from the point of view of somehow he's getting better performance and we just need to work harder. They didn't say, what is he doing that's different than most people? And so when they heard the word heart, they literally thought, oh, man, did he have like a religious breakdown or a spiritual transformation or like what happened to Mark? I'm not kidding. Wow. Um, there was tremendous sort of like confusion about what it was that I was doing here. And all I was doing is articulating what I've been doing my entire life. Interesting. And, and so what was, did they, did they take from it or was there a barrier that stopped them from continuing to learn from you? No, I think, I I think that, you know, in other words, they admired what I was doing. They admired the success. And I, you know, I, I received many, many promotions and got some very, very big responsibilities and people could see, you know, outside looking in, he's pretty good. You know, obviously he keeps getting these opportunities and so he's good. So I think that was as far as people went. People didn't get into how is he getting it and what is he doing and isn't he doing anything differently? And so when you just come at it from the mental point of view that he's good and then you see the heart stuff, it, I, it you know, it took me a while. Though I, I was like, I was like, really? Like you, you couldn't see that this is what I was doing. But at the end of the day, I was like, OK, you know, I get what you, what's what's really going on is they looked at the title and thought that there was a gap that I had gone somewhere else, if you will, you know, right. that, that and and they couldn't reconcile that. And so part of it is when you break out of a tribe, Carol, and when you break, you know, I, I left and then went and did something entirely different. That's a little uncomfortable for some people. And so that's part of the reason why I think, you know, many people just sort of like confused and lost by it because I wasn't part of them anymore. But I also think the big reason was like, um, poor Mark, you know, this isn't going to work, you right. know. And that's not to say that I didn't have supporters and people that were backing me all the way. There, there certainly have been. But um, I'm also aware that there was just this, you know, poor Mark, you know, this is never going to fly. Well, I'm glad that that poor Mark continued to follow his heart and and uh, and share the message and, and create more uh, more dialogue around this. So it's certainly not poor Mark. on my It wasn't easy. I will tell you um, that was not easy. And, and it wasn't easy because I, I was used to having almost immediate success in whatever I had done before and knowing going in that, you know, I'm basically trying to really challenge our common assumptions and, you know, at least a century of approaching leadership from a command and control point of view that I knew, you know, intellectually that this was not going to be an easy win. Um, but to, you know, to hear people say, oh man, you know, that heart thing is just like, that is, 
like stupid or misinformed or man, you don't get business. And, and, you, and people don't tell you that they just tell you through their behavior. Right. right. Yeah. Um, when they, and, and so and I've had, I've had people in my life who've been very encouraging, which, you know, literally means by the way, to give people heart, um, to, to encourage means to give heart. Yeah. And, so having people in my life that could help me and say, stay the course, your message is truth. In fact, one of the people that did that for me was the late Spencer Johnson, who uh, many people will remember from Who Moved My Cheese. Right. And was yes. really, you know, the genius behind the one minute manager. And we were having dinner one night and he said to me, he goes, he goes, don't give up. And he said, because... What you're talking about, Mark, is truth. And all truth immediately is, isn't immediately embraced, but inevitably is embraced. And so those words from him particularly were really, really inspiring to me in those days when I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is like, you know, I'm really trying to arm wrestle with people who are terribly resistant for the wrong reason. Right. It's like, be patient you'll get there. Yeah. And then that's where, you know, the term follow your heart. Uh, you talked about some great metaphors in the book and, and that's something that I've always tried to be true is to follow my heart. And, and, you know, similar to you, I was told a lot of things as I progressed further and further in my career that you shouldn't be doing it this way. You shouldn't be doing it that way. And it just seems so counterintuitive, but it, it got very lonely and, and you, it can be very disheartening. Uh, so what advice would you give to anyone out there listening who has the same feeling that you and I did and, and maybe needs uh, a bit more of a push or a bit more encouragement? What, what would your advice be to them? Well, I will say this, that um, through the course of my career in managing this way, I didn't just get great performance from people. Um, I, there's an inherent, an internal validation that comes in return for managing this way. First of all, you see people light up. And if you care about other people and you care about their thriving and well-being and success, uh, there's really very few things in my life that have ever given me more exhilaration than to see that the way that I approached leadership was impacting people so deeply in their lives and elevating their, their not only elevating their, their performance, but elevating what they believe they could perform. And so the other side of this was that I legitimately got great performance out of people. And so my teams did well. I got rewarded financially. I got rewarded in terms of recognition. So, um, and as we've already talked about, Carolyn, nobody ever really looked to see what I was doing. They just judged me on the fact that I was getting great results. Right. So, I mean, I really do say you need to love your people, but you don't have to say to your people, I love you. Just show it to them. Right. Just demonstrate it to them. Right. And just know in your heart, no pun intended, that you're doing the right thing. And if you just care about your people and support them in the way that we've been discussing, you will get great performance. And then people are going to know that you are differentiated in the way you manage. And one of the great rewards for that was that I never had a lack of incredibly talented people wanting to come work for me. Right. And the reason was is I promoted them. I helped them grow, helped them get where they wanted to go. They felt like they were part of a great team. 
So there are tremendous rewards for doing this. And one of them, frankly, isn't it's less rewarding to have your boss say, hey, I'm going to give you permission to start managing this way. So this is what we're going to do here. It's much more rewarding to manage the way you know best and to give people what you believe is best and to get the rewards from that on your own versus having somebody tell you. Okay. That would be my advice. You couldn't, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and those little ways of showing you care, um, you know, some examples that that I, I used in my career was I would just ask people how they're doing, regardless of where they were in the organization and look them in the eye and have a genuine conversation, even if it was only for five minutes. Uh, we had a VP of finance at our company too, and he, he walked through the halls and said hi to people. How are you doing? And he was so happy. And it, that did wonders. And, and so my point with that is, is the simple, simple things can show genuine care and concern. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, a big, uh, totally, big ordeal. Totally agree. I mean, totally, totally agree with you. Um, interest, showing someone interest is a positive emotion. Experiencing kindness is a positive emotion. So, yep. you know. That works. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious to hear a bit more from you, uh, Mark. Uh, you, you talk about four four ways to lead from your heart. So hire people with heart, heart to heart, empower the heart, and inspire the heart. I, we won't go into all of them, but there was one in particular that I wanted to chat about you uh, with you, and that was empower the heart. And so um, when you when you talked about that element of leadership. Um, Something that stood out for me is how can we empower our own hearts as, as leaders? What are your What are your thoughts on that? How can leaders find their own heart? And it, I know it, it sort of carries on from what we were just talking about, um, but I find that a lot of leaders know what they could be doing and and should be doing, but something gets in the way and it stops them from doing it. What are your thoughts on that? Stops on stops them from doing what specifically? So give me an example uh, of what we, I'd say, what we hold ourselves back from. Yeah, leading stops ourselves from leading from the heart. So you know, here here's my personal story. Really, is I thought for for years I was leading from the heart. And if you talk to anybody who I worked with, I was known as one of those managers who listens, who cares. And in fact, it didn't even matter if you reported to me. I would always have space to to connect. And what I've come to realize over the past year is I think my head was masquerading as my heart. And I was making mm-hmm. decisions that I thought were really from my heart, uh, but they weren't. They, they really weren't. And so how can we help people get more in touch with their heart and, and all that comes with that? So I, I think the, the first thing would be to say that you have to grasp this idea that the heart is not a pump, not just a pump, right? So it, it's, it's performing a function that is, you know, most it's transcended. I mean, I don't think that science in my lifetime is going to get to the depths of this, but we're already learning that it has, it, it beats on its own. The mind isn't beating the heart for us. Uh, we have heard language forever, follow your heart, learn it by heart, have a change of heart, you know, which fundamentally means to rethink something, right? To, to consider and then change your mind. It, but it, it, it's saying that it's coming from the heart. And this is in all languages. So, you know, we, we sort of 
we don't say, hey, I need you to learn this by mind. You're going to have a big test on Monday. So we say learn it by heart. And why would we even do that? Like, where did that originate? And why is it in all languages? And the reason is, is because we all deeply believe that the heart does more than pump. And so if you realize then we have two organs of intelligence and all we're doing to you, the example that you just gave me is using the mind or using the mind to mask what we think is the heart, then we're limiting ourselves because we are feeling, sensing people, right? And if emotions are driving us, we might as well at least be aware of what those are. So I'll give you an example of one thing that I did that had tremendous impact. I would, so, you know, let's say, you know, I'm sending a, an, an email out and this is gonna affect, you know, 3000 people. Okay, so um, people that work for me. And so they're hearing my voice, they're hearing the message that I'm trying to communicate, and I'm having an impact on these people's behaviors. So I would write the email, like what it is that I wanna communicate. And then I would read it back to myself and say, how does this make people feel? Mm. So in other words, I'm going into, like I'm moving out of Mark as the author of this. And I'm moving into how would somebody else feel in reading this? Are they feeling threatened? Are they feeling insecure? Are they feeling inspired? Are they feeling motivated? Are they feeling excited? Are they fearful? You know, what, what is the emotion that I'm creating here? And is it the emotion that I want? And so I would then go back in, you know, so it's like I'm playing me against an alternative me. And the alternative me was saying, hey, you need to tone this down or you need to make this more positive. You need to make this more uplifting. What is it you're trying to accomplish? And so by doing that, when I would send out an email, I would never be depressing people or discouraging people. And even if I had bad news to present, I would find ways to position it in a way that I knew that would make people feel good knowing that this is going to impact their motivation. It's like, hey, we have a challenge. Let's get let's let's get to the challenge. Let's not approach the challenges doom and gloom. We're never going to get there. We're screwed. All you know, right. and that's what happens when you come out of your mind quickly. You just go, I'm going to write. Going back to that quote you had earlier, it's like we're we want to be efficient. We have all these. I have these 20 things on my to do list. I'm going to send this communication out, and then we send it out, and it goes to those 3,000 people, and 2,500 of them are pissed off yeah. when you get done. Right. Yeah. So. Um, it's just thoughtfulness. It's just really being thoughtful about how is my behavior affecting how other people are feeling. And if you just keep that one idea in your mind, you'll alter it. And it's not weak. It's simply, it's, it's caring about the response that you are generating in somebody else. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's a responsibility really, you, you know, to, to be aware of the impact that you're having on others around you. Um, and, and slowing down and giving yourself the space to do that, to to reread that email and and recognize that that's time worth spending. But if you think that, you know, hey, you know, suck it up. This is work. That's the way we do things around here. You're never going to buy into what I just said. Yeah. Right. So it's a mindset change, which is to say that um, our behavior as leaders has an impact on people and be vigilant with that, you know, recognize that 
you can do a lot of harm by being super efficient with some sort of a communication that isn't thoughtful and isn't recognizing the impact on people and how they feel. And so that mindset change that you just referred to there, do you see that mindset changing with the work that you're doing in in universities and with post uh, post secondary education and and with uh, you know other other leaders that you're working with? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So, um, just to pin this down, the the book is my book is being taught in in eight universities, um, and I'm actually active with two of them. Very, very active. Um, and in it's interesting because one of them has is is an undergraduate entrepreneurship program, and they teach it in a couple different classes to a couple different professors. And they've been doing this now for about five years. And I go online and literally read their papers. They'll, they, they'll have to respond to questions that the professor has related to the book or about articles that I've written. And I'll go on there and read the feedback that these students have written and actually comment on them, give them feedback. It's kind of a cool thing for both yeah. of us, right, to be able to have an interaction with an author. I think if I was on the other side of that, that would be cool. Uh, the other is it is an educational PhD program. So it's, it's organizational leadership PhD program. So the difference is the students in the undergraduate program, these are generally people in their 20s. They're not 18 year olds. They're, you know, they're out there. They're all working mostly, you know, now they're getting their degrees. Now they've got their, you know, they've got their foundations, you know, squared away. So I'm thinking maybe 23, 24 years old, uh, you know, smattering of people younger than that. PhD people are people that are in government, in uh, law enforcement, and a big proportion in education. These are people that want to become superintendent of school districts, and they need a PhD to get there. So they're probably in their late 30s, maybe 40s, Uh, right? Yep. That whole window of people has never rejected this. They, I don't get... I don't know why we're reading this book, or this doesn't make any sense to me, or why would we ever bring heart into leadership? What I get routinely from both of so this is a big band of, you know, basically 20 to 40 year olds who already see this and don't argue with it. They go, this has to be the future. But when you go further than that and you get into, into you know, people in their later 40s and 50s, that's where the resistance comes yep. in. Because we've never done it this way and I've been successful this way. So why should we change? That's the mentality. So I know what the future is. I know this is going to be embraced. And I think there's a tipping point because what's happening now is, you know, the, the, the oldest millennials now are about 39 years old. And that's just about the time when some of these guys are getting into very senior leadership roles, even CEO level positions. And these are the people that already embrace this. So they're going to walk into cultures and they're going to say, hey, we're going to have to change this. Yep. And their very actions will permeate down throughout the organization. That's that's a, it's easier when it starts at the top. Much easier for a culture to change when it starts at the it top. It is. I, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. Um, it, it, your, what's your insight or what's your uh, perspective then 
on perhaps one of those uh, older CEOs um, who isn't going to change and you're you're not willing to risk changing jobs because I know that that's always an option people have too and not everybody is, is willing to take that risk. What advice would you have for people, a middle manager, maybe even an individual contributor on a team? I mean, we're so much more team-based than we used to. What advice would you have from them to help them lead from the heart in their environment? As an individual contributor? Or a middle manager. Okay. Um, it's much easier to, to speak to the middle manager because it's a leadership role, obviously, and a big one. Um, and, you know, in my career and progressing, I was a middle manager and it's a very ambiguous kind of a place to be, you know, um, and it's a difficult role. But I think that, again, really the common denominator here is that you will differentiate yourself by how you lead. And if you want to truly differentiate yourself, lead the way we're talking about here. I'll give you another example of something that just played out today. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the innumerable um, problems of trust um, that um, Wells Fargo Bank in the United States yep. has had over the last few yep. years, right? Just outright fraud and in so many different departments. So very recently, um, two years after the whole mess and you know all the publicity around this, there's still evidence that the organization has not changed its ways, that people are still unhappy, they're being forced to do, you know, to meet goals, which then creates the, I'm gonna need to cheat in order to get there because these goals are too oppressive and unrealistic and I don't wanna lose my job, which is kind of what created this culture. Um, and so the CEO ended up leaving today, just literally just withdrew and I think surprised some people. But I've been watching this all along tied to the belief that you, if you created these problems, it's going to be very hard for you to solve yep. them. You're not going to see what they, practices and behaviors will bring you to a new reality. And when you look at that organization and you realize that how many employees are millennials and now even starting with, you know, Gen Z in their bank branches. Um, they're just not going to put up with it. And so I think the pressure from outside was to say, hey, there's so much unethical behavior here that, you know, something needs to change. But I think what's also interesting is that somebody who was determined to change but had the old mindset proved completely ineffective at doing it. And that's why he ended up leaving. Yeah. Well, and that's a great example. I actually wrote a paper for my master's on Wells Fargo. So I'm certainly familiar. And I saw yeah. that, I saw that note come through and I thought, now that's the change that they need. Uh, so hope, hopefully that will help, uh, help turn things around there at that organization. Um, before we close off, Mark, I'd love to hear if it, there's another story uh, you could share. It's always great to hear personal experiences. Um, any stories you could share with us around, watching a leader transform and, and tap into the value of, of leading from the heart? Maybe somebody um, who was a little resistant at first. Any stories come to mind around that? Um, yeah, I actually have uh, one that I told in the book. Um, so I'm trying to, I want to make sure that I frame this up in the most easiest terms for everybody to hear. Um, we'll put it this way. Um, the organization that I was working in was acquired. 
And in the process of being acquired, I was the only one at my level that they ended up selecting. And so they sort of divvied up the geography. And so there was one guy to the north of me, one guy to the south of me, and I'm in the middle. But not only did I inherit people who were working for those two gentlemen, but I inherited people who were working for all the people in my own organization who didn't get the job. Mm. So it's like having, you know, waking up one day and having a new team where you got two guys from the Yankees, two guys from the Mets, two guys from the Orioles, two guys from the Giants, two guys from the Red Sox, two guys from the Cardinals. There's no common denominator. Everybody was being managed differently. And so I come on board and I am feeling tremendous, like fierce resistance from a handful of people that are working for me. And I've never really experienced that before. And I didn't really understand it, but they were really not just sort of resistant, but almost out to get oh, boy. And as it, came, as it came to, you know, it was very threatening to me. It was very, you know, it was very disconcerting. And I didn't know how to manage it because I hadn't been in that situation before. And I first needed to understand what was happening. And as it turned out, there was this one person and she was sort of the ringleader. And there was somebody that she used to work with that came from my organization. And she just assumed that because I was coming from that same organization that I was going to manage her in this you know, very dark way, very high control, fear, micromanagement. And so she just started telling everybody, he's going to be horrible. He's going to be mean to us. He's going to run us just like that other person did. And it was completely crazy. Wow. And I didn't know about this for a while. Honestly, I knew that um, I knew that that she was being highly resistant. But what I ended up finding out was that she literally written a letter to the president of the bank saying, you've made a horrible mistake. You need to get rid of him. He's horrible. Wow. This was before she really even knew me. And my boss told me this later, and I was just completely mortified and also grateful that he didn't fire yeah. me, you know, take her at her word. So I had a decision to make. And the decision was, do I just make her life miserable because she's made my life miserable? Or do I take a different approach? And so my, my thought was, I'm not the person she thinks I am. So I'm just going to show that to her over time. So when she was in meetings, if she was, she was actually a good manager. She was very, very good. And so when I had my team together, I had these monthly meetings, I would congratulate her. I wasn't showing her any disrespect or, you know, shunning her because she was being critical and keep in mind that she was doing real harm. She was really getting other people to align with her and resist me. So I could have been very angry and taken a different response. Right. So I, I applauded her in those meetings. I sent her notes when I saw her doing well. I made sure she knew that I saw the good that she was doing. And um, just to sort of pin this down, over time, she ended up realizing that she had been wrong. And she started telling people, not only was I wrong, but that, you know, that I actually was the best manager that she'd ever worked for. And so she came to me and apologized to me. So she ended up getting cancer. Oh, dear. And she went out. She went out right after we had just sort of made peace with one another. She went out with cancer and I kept her on the team. I was sending her all of our reports and made sure she felt very much connected to it. And she ended up coming back and then about two months later went back out and 
and passed oh, away. Dear. And the day, the day after she died, her family called me and said that her name was Shirley, that Shirley had made it known that she wanted me to speak at her funeral. And I was the only person, not only, not, she didn't even ask the minister. minister wow. So I went and literally went to her funeral and told the story I just told you. Um, but, you know, it ended up validating what I had done and I could have crushed her if that's what I wanted to do. Instead, I got somebody who was able to transform herself and it was a much happier ending. You have to be patient and you have to trust in yourself. But um, that's like one of the coolest things that's ever happened. Yeah, that's a that's an incredible story. Thanks for sharing, Mark. Um, you know, it, like you said, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, but the impact that, you know, you clearly had on her was way deeper than it sounds like you originally had known. So it's pretty powerful stuff there. Pretty powerful. Thank yeah. You. Well, that is. I think it was recognition in herself too, you know, that, that she was wrong, that she had. So I think in some respects, she wanted to make it up to me, which was totally fine too. And did right? you see her leadership style? You had said she was, you know, a strong leader and had good results. Did you see her leadership style change as she worked more with you? She just got better. She really just yeah. got better. And, and she had very good instincts, but I was giving her permission to be herself and to do what she was already doing. And so when somebody, when you just feel totally comfortable being you and not being asked to do it in a different way, which by the way, was the methodology of the manager that had made her life so miserable. When somebody else is controlling you and taking away your autonomy and your independence and creativity, that that kills people's spirits. And that's what I connected into. I understood what she was feeling. She attributed it to me, which made no sense in the right. world. Um, but I understood how she'd been crushed before and never wanted to be crushed again. So I think over time, um, her, you know, she was she was running a big business and she it just kept getting better. And one of the signs of that is that when she was sick, her her business did not fail. Like, you know, she had cultivated a very strong team who was able to step up for her while she was out with cancer. And that's always a very good sign that a team can continue without you. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it demonstrates that the leader isn't the the only part of the of the team. So that absolutely demonstrates. Correct. Yeah. Um, you, you said something there, too, that really resonated with me, which is giving people the permission to be themselves. And I think that really uh, sums up a lot of what it means to lead from the heart is to give yourself permission to be who you are and to and to share that with others around you. You know, um, we have an inclination as managers that is really not serving us well. And I don't know where it comes from, but what we tend to do is we, we've convinced ourselves that our job is to call out people's limitations and weaknesses and help them get better at them. And there's just all sorts of science that negates this, that it's actually really toxic to do it that way. And that what we really need to be doing is to amplify people's strengths and accept that people are who they are. And when you do that and you allow people to kind of individualize how they're going about their work, hold them accountable to the same standard 
but just let people do it in a way that's different from yours. And this is very hard for people. We want to say, you know, if, if you were, if I were you, you know, and we're not right. And there's the way I learned to do it or, and sometimes it's right. Right. Sometimes there are ways that, you know, we learn that we teach others, but it's the philosophy and it's the idea and the mentality that, People aren't like us and we need to craft them in our mold that really backfires on us. And so I find that just honoring people who they are, calling out their strengths, you know, obviously you want to help people diminish their limitations. You can't ignore them, but we turn it upside down and say, we're going to focus on the limitations. We're going to say, you need to fix these five things. And then I'm going to sandwich that with one piece of positivity at the beginning and one piece of positivity at the end. And all people here are the five things that you told them they need to do differently. Yeah. And it, it just it's a good old work. feedback sandwich, right? It's a, it's not, it's not, it's no good. It is no good at all. It's no good. Yeah. People know what you're they up do. to. Well, Mark, I uh, would love to spend hours speaking with you. Um, I am inspired by your work. I have uh, really appreciated our conversation here today. Uh, and I'd like to welcome our listeners to follow you um, and and read your work if they don't already. Could you just share a few ways they could reach out and, and hear more about your work? Um, thank you. So I think the easiest way is my website is markccrowley.com. And if you forget that, leadfromtheheart.com will get you there. And that'll take you to my Twitter link, my LinkedIn link, all my articles, my book, everything, podcast. So thank you for asking. Beautiful. Well, thanks, Mark. Uh, I know I have found some uh, deeper places in my heart that I can lead from and uh, really, really appreciate, uh, <laughs> appreciate your time today. Very well said. It's been a real pleasure, Carolyn. Thank you so very much. hearing more about PWE? Well, I'd welcome you to buy my book, Rules of Engagement, Building a Workplace Culture to Thrive in an Uncertain World. I share stories, personal and professional, about different elements of PWE, and it's available on Amazon or on Indigo. Thanks to all of you out there. This is why we do this. This is why we have this conversation. We look forward to being with you again on our next PWE and Me podcast. Now, the best way you can hear us is to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes. And if you don't like either one of those two, you can always go to my website at carolynsuara.com.